Ready. Hello, and welcome to the Alex Montoya Show. Today is January 12th, 2021. Uh, one twelve two one, which is um, heartwarming for all palindrome lovers. If you're in Europe, the day is listed as one two one two one. All right, maybe I'm gonna cut that out. <laughs> let, me, let me let me let me start over. Hello, and welcome to the Alex Montoya Foundation. This is Court Peters, your host. Uh, today is January 12th, 2021, and I am joined with the Alex Montoya. Hey, hey. Fanfare, fanfare, cheering. We also are joined with a special guest, uh, and it is the Matthew DeCarlis. Matt is a member of the practice group of uh, Employment Rights Project it, with Bet Sedex. Say hello, Matt. Hello, Cord and Alex. Thank you for having me. Thanks for that. You know, M- Matt, it's not just us. You- you've got a whole uh, list and bevy of <laughs> listeners tuning into the Alex Montoya podcast. Well, hello, everyone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, we are happy to have you here. Um, as, as you know, the Alex Montoya Foundation at alexmontoya.org, uh, we support all um, disability rights as well as uh, giving awareness to uh, immigrant issues. And, um, and so, Alex, you, we've talked before about um, being a triple amputee and what that means for uh, disability and disability rights and all that you do for encouraging others and motivating them. Um, to focus on what they have rather than what they don't have. Uh, what not a lot of people know, because your English is so good, sure. <laughs> it, is that you're actually from Colombia. Is that Correct. right? I uh, was proudly born in Medellin, Colombia, uh, moving to the United States when I was four. At four years old, how did you get to, how did you get to the United States from Colombia? Uh, Got here because uh, an organization that uh, is national, the Shriners Hospitals, uh, actually offered to my family the opportunity to come to the States and be um, examined at a clinic uh, to see if uh, prosthetics uh, could be utilized and helpful for my future, uh, given my disability, given that I was born as a triple amputee. Um, the, The stipulation was... If uh, at the clinic they determined that prosthetics would be helpful for me, they would then um, uh, fly me to the U.S. uh, to receive those prosthetics, and that's what happened. They determined that I was definitely a good candidate uh, for prosthetics to be useful for me, and then they um, offered uh, to take care of those prosthetics and essentially provide uh, uh, medical care for me uh, all the way uh, until age 18. Uh, which which was later extended. Uh, and so my family decided at that point that it would be better for me in receiving those prosthetics to just uh, relocate uh, and, um, and allow me to move to the U.S. full time. Gosh, that's a that's like a miracle story. Uh, so from the age of four, uh, you had no prosthetics from right? the age of from birth all the way to four years old. So the first four years of my life, 
I did not have any prosthetics and uh, was pretty much just uh, helped uh, 100% of the day uh, by my family. And then the, this clinic uh, you're talking about is uh, outside Medellin, no, is so that right? No, the clinic itself in was in the Bay Area. Uh, so uh, when I very first visited uh, with my mother, it was kind of a classic uh, Americana uh, tale. Uh, we flew from Columbia to New York, uh, did, did Ellis Island, did Statue of Liberty, did all of that, and uh, just kind of marveled at this wonderful opportunity before us. Uh, flew cross country to San Francisco, and that's where the uh, clinic was, uh, where they uh, examined me and said, "Yeah, he, he could absolutely use prosthetics." Okay, this examination was—I uh, mean, they were checking to make sure that you really were a triple amputee, well, or what else? They wanted to see certainly that you know that the reports they had gotten as far as that went checked out, but also that I had enough. Um, uh, limb structure to be able to support using prosthetics. So with my disability, I still have from my shoulder down to my elbow, and essentially those stubs, for lack of a better word, uh, were going to be, uh, you know, what would allow me to be able to utilize arm prosthetics. And then my right leg, which uh, really is a shortened right leg, they wanted to make sure that I had enough uh, there to be able to to wear a prosthetic uh, right leg. So. Uh, they wanted to make sure that essentially that I had enough uh, bone structure and bone mass uh, and muscle mass to support uh, wearing three prosthetics. And you did. Correct. And you do. And so they, uh, they determined, now that was when I was two years old, so they determined just based on growth that uh, I would be a, a good candidate to receive prosthetics when I was four, two years later. And so uh, everything began, uh, the process began for me to relocate to the U.S. Uh, to receive those prosthetics. Okay. Gosh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, it's, it's still in the same theme of uh, focusing on what you have uh, rather than what you don't have. It's so great that you did have that uh, muscle mass and bone structure to be able to support prosthetics. Yeah, and right? you, you, you alluded to it earlier. I mean, it was a miracle. It was a miracle that... Uh, that uh, this change with the Shriners hospitals happened and that they, uh, you know, quickly, you know, advocated and wanted to help me out. And it was absolutely uh, a miracle that uh, even, even despite what I was missing, what really was more important was what I had, which was, uh, you know, enough uh, bone structure and muscle mass to be able to wear prosthetics. So, you know, it, it's so interesting that, so many people will, will meet me and the first thing they might see or think of is, oh gosh, all the things that he's missing. But in reality, we were rejoicing over what God had given because it was going to uh, transform my life to a whole new level. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really amazing. Um, so Matt, uh, you, uh, you're not from Columbia, uh, but <laughs> we're all we're all here in Southern California, uh, but but you're not from here. You're not from around these parts, are you? That's right. I'm born and raised outside of Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, right in that little stretch of about 40 miles where Pennsylvania has a coastline on Lake Erie. So uh, the weather here in Southern California, especially this time of year, is slightly different than oh. there. 
Uh, we don't have too much lake effect snow here in Los Angeles, uh, <laughs> but we do see the sun a lot, and I appreciate that. Okay, that's that's great. Now, obviously, uh, the, we're all friends, and what we all have in common is our um, uh, something in our past. So, how how did uh, what happened after you grew up in uh, in Erie? You must have gone to some great college. I did, in fact, a college that had almost as much lake effect snow as Erie, uh, near the shore of Lake Michigan, called uh, the University of Notre Dame, Our Lady's University in South Bend, Indiana. Oh, that's so great. Uh, so at, at, at Notre Dame, you were uh, an econ major, but also uh, uh, you studied abroad. Is that right? That's right. I had studied Spanish in high school and wanted to continue building upon that um, as I pursued my economics degree. So uh, Notre Dame, uh, even at the time in the 1990s, really encouraged students to consider study abroad experiences. And uh, I decided to go to Mexico City uh, my sophomore year because I really wanted to become fluent in the language and realized that that would be the best way through an immersion program like that. So I spent a semester uh, in the, the Mexican capital uh, studying at, at uh, the Jesuit University there with uh, Mexican students and other uh, foreign students who were participating in the program. So then you went back to Notre Dame. That's right. They, they, they let me come back. <laughs> go Irish. Uh, so you go back. You go back to Notre Dame with this new perspective from Mexico City, and you've got this idea, and you're and you're now uh, pretty good in Spanish or fluent in Spanish, um, and you decide to uh, do something with it, right? That's right. I, um, I added on. It, it wasn't considered to be a minor, but functionally equivalent of Latin American studies, uh, because I really. Uh, appreciated the opportunity to live in another country, to learn the history, to meet the people, to uh, improve my language skills. And when I was back at Notre Dame in South Bend, I had a chance to uh, volunteer in some of the community organizations that worked with the uh, Latin American community there in that region. Uh, many of the people who had spent time in Chicago, but then later spread out across the Midwest, including in uh, northern Indiana. So I uh, volunteered and uh, helped um, families and individuals who were studying for their citizenship exam uh, by working with them on the, the questions and helping them with their English. Wait, where, where were you doing this? Uh, it was a program called El Buen Vecino. So it's a nonprofit organization that's in South Bend. Oh, wow. I didn't know about that. Uh, El Buen Vecino. I believe that that's trans translated to The Buen Vecino. Is that right? <laughs> that's right. Yes, Cord. I, I see you studied uh, Spanish ah. as well. Uh, yes, it, it's, um, and some people may even say it translates as The Good Neighbor. Depending uh, on their regional dialect, I think. Okay, awesome program. It sounds like a sounds like an awesome program. Uh, but then you also took this a step further once you graduated, right? That's right. I, as part of the Latin American Studies program, I took a class at Notre Dame with a, 
a very well-known professor of immigration studies uh, who had actually gotten his PhD at Notre Dame uh, years before. Um, his name's Jorge Bustamante. Uh, so he spends most of his year at a university in um, near Tijuana, uh, Baja California in Mexico, uh, near San Diego, and then uh, taught a, a class in, uh, once a year at Notre Dame about immigration issues. So uh, I learned a lot from him about immigration and wanted to learn even more. Uh, and like many of our Notre Dame classmates, uh, as I was heading toward graduation, I knew I wanted to do some sort of volunteer service when I graduated. Uh, in any given year, at least at that time, about 10% of uh, our classmates would do some sort of uh, post-graduation service experience, whether it was Teach for America, the Alliance for Catholic Education program, the Peace Corps, that kind of thing. So uh, the professor um, put me in contact with a group of missionary priests uh, called the Scalabrinians. So they're the missionaries of St. Charles. They're a relatively small uh, Catholic order compared to some of the bigger groups. Uh, you may know the, the Jesuits or the Franciscans. Um, this is a much smaller order, but uh, their focus, or what they call their charism, is on um, serving immigrants and refugees around the world. Uh, and they get their name from uh, an Italian bishop from the late 1800s. His name was Bishop Scalabrini, uh, who was in Piacenza, which is an area near Milan in northern Italy. Uh, and he got permission from the Pope to found this religious order this group of missionary priests who would go, uh, go out with the, at that time, the Italian emigrants who were leaving Italy uh, and going to places like the United States and Canada and South America and elsewhere uh, to accompany the people um, to be able to say mass and perform the sacraments with them um, and to help them adjust to their new lives in these countries where they didn't necessarily speak the language or know the customs or know the culture. So, you know, this way they would have, um, they would have pastors who would be with them um, so that they could keep their faith alive and in their, their Italian language. Um, and, you know, over the years, of course, uh, the face of immigration has changed around the world, but really the reasons why people immigrate have not. It's always been part of human history that people are on the move, um, sometimes by choice, um, sometimes not really by choice if we're talking about droughts or famines or wars, or often, you know, just looking for a, a better life uh, for themselves and for their family, particularly in places where there just aren't the economic opportunities that they would like to have. Uh, so, uh, long story short, the Scalabrinians, among their work uh, these days, um, have a number of uh, shelter houses around the world where they receive immigrants and refugees and people who are on the move. Uh, and so the professor from his work uh, near Tijuana uh, put me in contact with um, the priests uh, and the, the, the brothers who run the Casa del Migrante, the the, the migrants house in Tijuana. Um, and that's a shelter house that's been 
there since the, the late 1980s, um, receiving people who were either coming from other parts of Mexico or elsewhere in Central America or the world, trying to go to the United States in search of a better life, or people who had left the United States who had been deported or, or um, left on their own volition if they were facing deportation. Um, so it, it, I spent about a year as a live-in volunteer there um, with the missionary priests and with the other volunteers who were ministering to um, these, um, these amazing people, the, the immigrants who were there. So this was in 1999 and 2000, so um, more than 20 years ago at this point. You were actually living there with the other um, refugees. That's right. It's a multi-story um, facility, and, and you've been there before, Court, um, on one of our trips, uh, service uh, opportunities. And, and so it's a short-term shelter um, that has dormitory-style rooms where the people can stay and spend the night. Uh, so I had my little room um, where I lived uh, because I was a full-time volunteer there, as were several other people, generally um, similar age to mine at the time, you know, early to mid-20s, um, people from the United States and Mexico and um, other countries who were similar to why I was there, you know, wanting to serve and to learn and to take some of my time and, and talent to uh, you know, help the, the CASA fulfill its mission of basically being a refuge for people who were on the move and didn't have a place to stay. Um, and we fed them and um, provided shelter. Uh, there's medical care there. Um, there's uh, job training and counseling programs, um, all sorts of services. And, and over the years, they, they've been able to grow and expand the types of services they offer. Um, you know, and all from the perspective from the time of Bishop Scalabrini, who subsequently, uh, you know, for his service to the church and to humanity, um, is in the process of uh, potentially becoming recognized as a saint by the Catholic Church. Um, Pope John Paul II beatified him um, in uh, the... 1990s, I believe it was. So beatification is one step before you're officially named a saint. Um, and, you know, the, the, the bishop's really inspiration comes from the, the story of the last judgment in the, the book of Matthew, um, chapter 25. You know, the, the whole story of, you know, I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. You know, this idea that as Jesus was telling the story and saying there, there were folks who met these um, criteria and therefore were welcomed into the kingdom. And there were others who did not. And, and they say, well, well, when when did I see you hungry and feed you or not feed you? When were you a stranger and I welcomed you or didn't welcome you? And he said, well, whenever you do this to the least of my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. And so that's, they actually have that written, that verse written in Spanish on the outside of the building of the Casa de Migrante. You can see it from the street. It says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. So 
that's that's their oh, mission that's awesome. and so that's what we as volunteers were, were trying to live and to carry on uh, that spirit from italy in the late 1800s to tijuana mexico in 1999 you were literally doing the exact same work that um now blessed scalabrini that's was right. doing or trying to you know the best we can as with all of our human imperfections well, and Alex, you didn't have the same, uh, you didn't visit a Casa del Migrante, the, the way that you romantically described your, your trip to New York and the Statue of Liberty. Uh, uh, you had family already waiting for you. Exactly. I already had family um, at the time living in Northern California, and they were actually just on the verge uh, because of um, you know, military assignments of uh, being relocated down to San Diego. Uh, which is how I wound up here full time, and and how I, how I wound up growing up in San Diego. So what what's the what's the connection between um what, what what's the what's the family relationship? Uh, so my mother's sister uh, already lived here in California uh, with her family. She had emigrated in the 1950s uh, from Colombia to the U.S. and so uh, she she married. Uh, had uh, had a husband and several kids, and so they really became my second family. So it was uh, my aunt, uh, and she was my mother's sister. Okay, but you call your aunt. I call her mama. mama. I call her mom. Uh, she really became uh, like a second mom to me. Um, you know, and again, uh, completely identifying with the with the um, the the theme or the idea of have uh, you know I, I really went from a situation where um, I was leaving my nuclear family my biological family for a better life in the states and so technically uh, you know I was leaving my my mother but then I was gaining a second mother so in life um, I really believe that that I am blessed with great abundance and in one of those ways is that I actually have two moms so yeah, you 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 call your birth mother your mother, and you call the mom that raised you your mom. Correct, correct. Right? So my my, and, birth, my uh, birth mother, I I always you know pretty much refer to her as my mother, and then whenever I'm talking about my mom, uh, it's my aunt. Okay, and but your um, you have birth siblings, right? Yes. Uh, in total, my birth siblings uh, numbered uh, three. Uh, we lost one to cancer in 2012, but I do still have a, uh, a brother and a sister uh, residing in Medellin. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so then you go to live with your aunt, who's your new right. mom, and your, um, and your new dad, right. uh, Frank. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and they've got, uh, and they've got, kids. they've got kids. They actually had, um, uh, four of their own, uh, the two oldest sons, which actually was from my mom's uh, previous marriage, but then they had two of their own. So four total. Uh, one of them uh, has Down syndrome, my uh, beloved Frankie, uh, named after his father, um, which is another reason why I became a, you know, a, a major advocate for disability rights. Uh, in addition to to just my own story and my own experiences uh, was seeing the road that Frankie had to take growing up as somebody with a developmental disability. Uh, but essentially 
those four kids, even though they were my cousins, really became like siblings to me. Yeah. The, you know, the um, people might assume that the Alex Montoya Foundation uh, focused on dis- disability awareness because you yourself are disabled. But the reality is what you just said, that the, it has more to do with the love and support that you've uh, gained and, and learned from from your brother with Down. Yes, it really it really is everything. It's 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 my experiences, but then also just um, just seeing the different pathways that so many that are dear to me have taken. Um, you know, it's really interesting how, even though, even though I have a visible disability, the, the things that I've had to overcome, uh, are different than from what others have overcome in many instances, including Frankie, um, you know, that, that pathway is harder. That road is harder and seeing the, uh, the, the things that he's had to endure or for example, um, you know, even just, um, uh, the word, uh, retarded, uh, which is one of our main points of advocacy is to really encourage people to not use that word. Um, you know, that's something that, that wouldn't be attributed to me disability wise, but has been attributed to him because of his disability and, and recognizing because of my relationship with him, how hateful that word is and how much words matter. Uh, it really led me towards advocacy down that path. Yeah, that's awesome. The you know you've got um, you got family in Colombia and you've got family here in the United States, and I can't help but uh, thinking back to Matt and his work at Casa del Migrante. That the really uh, you're in in a lot of cases, Matt, you're working with people who were leaving their families. Is that right? That's right. Um, you know, and one of the the amazing things about the work at the Casa is the chance to hear people's stories, to really sit down with them, you know, in this time of, you know, great stress and struggle for them because, you know, they're not from Tijuana. They don't have family or friends there, you know, so they're really in a place of transition in their lives, whatever it might be to hear their stories and uh, hear their experiences. And, and yes, many of them had left behind family and friends and, uh, wherever they were coming from. Um, but many of them were trying to reunite with other family members in the United States. Uh, not all of them. Right. Um, some of them didn't have any family there, but many of them did. And, and vice versa for the people who had been um, deported, you know, many of them left behind family, um, not by choice, but forcibly. Uh, and, and lots of them, really had only known life in the United States. You know, they may not have had a lawful status, um, but, you know, may have been brought to the United States when they were two or three or five years old. Um, And so, you know, they had only grown up in the U.S. and then were deported uh, and sent to Mexico where they may or may not have family still, but certainly didn't know the culture didn't know the place and sometimes didn't even speak Spanish or speak it very well. Uh, so yeah, you know, people, people sometimes think that, you know, um, people immigrate, you know, sort of on a whim. Um, and my experience taught me that you know, that's very rarely the case. It really is, as I mentioned earlier, you know, reasons of safety, security, uh, or the ability to provide for, oneself and one's family that that 
force people to you know, yeah. give up everything they knew, give up the, the life and the world they knew in search of, of something better, something different. Yeah, and in and in many ways, trying to create uh, create a a, a, a a new family and one that um, one is that um, of security of of safety and, and right. one with the future. Uh, you know, in some ways, it just occurs to me that I think family is is even thicker than blood. You know, um, where uh, in Alex's case, you know, you've, you're going from uh, some blood relations to maybe some extended right. family, but the the transition becomes immediate where she's your mom and, and your, and their kids are your, your brothers and sisters. Um, and the work of uh, blessed Scalabrini and the Casa del Migrante and, and your work, man, is really um, you're, you're creating uh, a, a family there and then preparing them for, for new life. For right. sure. It really is a ministry of hospitality and a ministry of welcome. So, and we're all part of the Notre yes. Dame family. So after, uh, Matt, <laughs> <laughs> yes, the Notre Dame family. Um, so, so Matt, after, uh, after Notre Dame, you graduated Notre Dame in 99, you go down to Casa de Migrante in Tijuana for a year. Uh, what happened to you? I'm, I'm, you know, we, those of us who have experienced the ministry, we, you know, you, you quickly find out that you are the one being ministered to, uh, you know, rather than um, providing services for others, even though you're doing that too. But um, so, so what happened to you? At Casa exactly. It next? certainly happened to me that because I, when I uh, agreed to do my, my volunteer service to go to a city, I'd never <coughs> visited part of a country where, you know, thousands of miles away from the capital city where I'd lived for a short time. Uh, I didn't know what was next uh, after that, but, you know, uh, divine providence has its way. And really in he hearing the stories of the people and learning about immigration issues um, on the ground there, right on the border between Mexico and the U.S., between Tijuana and San Diego, um, I, through my discernment, I decided that uh, I was going to go to law school. Uh, to become a lawyer and see if I might be able to work with immigrants, um, advocate for them, um, to s potentially uh, prevent some of them from ending up in a place like the Casa, to be separated from their family uh, and their life. Um, and so I, I knew I wasn't ready to go to law school yet. Um, so I uh, went to San Diego and spent a few years working for in my in my field of study in economics, um, working with a, a firm that uh, consulted with uh, large pension funds to help them um, decide and manage some of their investments. Uh, we could do, we could just call that yes, right? <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> but I knew I wanted to go to law school uh, and but needed some time to be working and being away from academics so that I could uh, be ready to give 100% when I uh, did start law school. So I was able to uh, stay in the area at the University of San Diego, a, another Catholic institution, um, where I uh, got my law degree and had a chance to do a number of different internships and externships, um, focusing on different areas of the law, but always with the uh, 
the idea of serving the community in some way, shape or form through the law. Um, and that led me to, as I graduated to a position at, at the organization where I'm still working today, uh, more than 15 years later, uh, Betsetic Legal Services in Los Angeles. So I, I love your, your, your work at, a, at the Catholic University and at the Catholic law school leads you to the that right. yes. Bet Sedek is a Hebrew phrase. It means the House of Justice. So oh. it's a nonprofit, a legal aid group. Um, it's based in LA and, and it's been around since um, the 1970s, serving the low income and vulnerable communities in Los Angeles in a number of different uh, legal issues and uh, providing free legal services to, to people. Um, and so my work. Uh, at the time, it was a, a fellowship with the idea that as a newbie lawyer, that I would get experience and exposure to different areas of law. And one of those was um, the work that I still do today, which is employment rights. So um, I didn't end up practicing immigration law, but the vast majority of my clients that I've uh, represented over the last 15 plus years um, are immigrants, um, primarily undocumented immigrants who speak Spanish. So I've been able to still use those language skills uh, that I built um, in high school and at Notre Dame um, and working with the community that, you know, I've been able to you know, learn some of, about the culture and the values and, and the things that are important to them uh, to help them protect their rights in the workplace um, which, you know, has been even more uh, vital in this time of COVID, the pandemic of the last 10 months, when so many people lost their jobs through no fault of their own with the pandemic. And also people who are what, you know, the society and commentators have called essential workers uh, doing work that we need as a society, right? Um, grocery stores, health care, um, elder care. Um, warehouses to get us our food and our things that we need, uh, truck drivers, uh, garment workers who are sewing um, medical gowns and, and protective gear, all those folks who are putting themselves and their families at risk uh, for COVID as they are, you know, supporting themselves and supporting our communities. And those of us who really have the, the luxury of being able to work from home uh, and still be employed um, while serving the community. So uh, it's really, you know, it's, it's been a blessing that I would have never envisioned uh, when I showed up for my first day at the CASA, thinking that I would become a lawyer and then uh, serve uh, the community in, in the way that I've been able to with the, you know, the skills and talents and experience that I have. And you won a million dollar loss. Uh, not me solo, yes, but I was part of a team. <laughs> we, we got a million dollar settlement in a big uh, class action case against some car washes that um, had been uh, stealing the wages of workers, um, the car wash workers um, uh, who uh, you know helped keep uh, Angelino's cars clean. And here in LA, almost on every corner, you'll find a car wash because people here love their cars. <laughs> You know, and I, I've had other cases involving, you know, $20 million was, I think, our biggest uh, settlement for a, a big group of warehouse workers 
um, who, again, you know, they're behind the scenes and invisible and people we don't often think about as the Amazon truck drops off, uh, whatever it is that we ordered 24 hours ago. Uh, but there's a person who manufactured that or people who manufactured whatever those products are and people who um, brought them to a warehouse, sorted them in the warehouse, put them into the package and someone who delivered it to us somehow. Uh, and, you know, the, you know, the, the, the Catholic church teaches, you know, as part of the very rich and long tradition of Catholic social teaching, really the, the dignity of work and the dignity of workers, um, as well as, you know, the intersection with immigration, right? The, the right that people have to be able to provide for themselves and their families, including um, the right to, to migrate, uh, particularly when their, their safety um, is at risk when we're talking about or uh, people in, in war zones or people who just don't, who their government and their society have not provided them the opportunity to be able to support their families and literally feed them and clothe them and house them. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, your, your critics would say, why are you helping undocumented workers? And the, uh, what I hear you saying is the answer is that uh, every human being uh, deserves hum basic human dignity, which includes the right to work and then also the right for, uh, for that's right. For that work. That's right. And you know, the, the, the church, uh, has taught, you know, the, the countries do have the right to establish their borders and protect their borders and, you know, have some regulation of who's coming and going and know who it is. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the literal survival of our brothers and sisters when conditions can't be met for them to be safe and to be able to take care of themselves and their families provide a secure life um, w when those aren't present, then, then people do have the right to, to seek a better life uh, as, as, as I said, right. As we have throughout human history. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the, I was struck too, by the, um, by the, uh, you, you, you mentioned something earlier about, um, uh, our Catholic social teaching, but uh, being at a, at a at a Jewish law firm, there's a, there's a long tradition of uh, uh, Jewish. That's right, and, well. you know, and particularly you know a lot of the progressive um, strands of Judaism really stress that um, you know there's a phrase in Judaism called tikkun olam um, in Hebrew. It, it means repairing the world. And the idea is that all of us have a role to play, whatever our station in life, uh, whatever our, our talents or skills, whatever it is, all of us can um, help the common good, help our neighbor, work together, um, you know, build solidarity um, and support each other in whatever way that may be. And, you know, the, the, one of the things of, of this pandemic, I think, has been the the fact that in the midst of so much suffering and struggle and sickness and stress um, and even death, unfortunately, right, there have been so many small and big moments where people have stepped up to help their 
their neighbors and help their elderly relatives and people who can't leave their house or go to the store or just by having a phone call saying hi to old friends or family. Um, all those things really are, you know, repairing the world and, you know, build, you know, as, as Catholics and as Christians, right. As, you know, following Jesus example of loving our neighbor and, and serving one another. You know, uh, and the Pope, uh, Pope Francis has declared this to be the year of St. Joseph. St. Joseph, of course, is the patron saint of workers. And so, um, he he is he is with you in your in your support of of, of workers, especially in the uh, employment rights projects. Uh, we all um, embrace our work and the dignity of work, and um, it's it's a fundamental human right. Um, and, and I you know through this podcast we've had uh, some we were we were going to talk about uh, immigrants and immigrant rights, but we ended up with uh, some good language lessons. We learned some <laughs> learned, learned some Spanish. Uh, Casa del Migrante means house of the migrant. Uh, El buen vecino means the good neighbor. And some Hebrew. Uh, repair the world. Tikkun Olam. There we go. Tikkun <laughs> Olam. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, Alex, you've got your work being blessed right now as well, right? You're working on some books and some, uh, do you have any speaking gigs uh, lined up? Yes. So my uh, big thing coming up uh, will be actually uh, virtually speaking uh, to a conference on January 22nd called the Boost Collaborative. And uh, it's really interesting because it's all about educating the educators, uh, primarily on how to handle the challenges that pandemic life has has really given to our country um, and how to uh, come up with as many innovative ways to to handle things like distance learning uh, and all the other challenges that are uh, a part of uh, an educator's uh, life right now. My main role is mostly to just encourage them and and really um, speak along the lines of of, of how you can look at an impossible situation and, and make it possible. Um, I'm very excited about that. And um, also just want to send a shout out to everyone that supported our book sale um, throughout the uh, holiday season. Uh, everyone was extremely supportive and definitely enjoyed getting a lot of copies of Alex Masters and the Monkey Bars. And you got this uh, out into people's hands for the holidays. Uh, you know, now that the holidays are over, the books are still here. They're still certainly uh, available for purchase. Uh, but it was fun getting them out for the uh, uh, for the holiday season, and, and looking forward to uh, speaking at that conference. Uh, in addition to just doing a lot of uh, uh, writing for clients. Wow, that's awesome! So more always, books on the horizon always. too. But, uh, but but first, you got to get yes. your copy of "You Got This." Um, which is, uh, in, uh, I'm sure, Matt, it's one of the phrases that you uh, that you used at Casa del Migrante, working with the people that, in transition. That's right. And in fact, it, <laughs> my copy is sitting here on my bookshelf right behind me. Hey, he literally has this. <laughs> I literally do. Yeah, he literally got this. He, he got this. He got this. Oh, excellent. Well, Matthew, I want to thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the work that you do uh for uh, on, on behalf of the workers not just in la but all around um 
good job on your uh, on your Spanish skills uh, that you continue to use on the news uh, and on and in the newspapers. Um, and congratulations, uh, Alex, on your upcoming uh, work. You too can get a copy of You Got This and Alex Mo- Masters the Monkey Bars. You can book Alex at a-motivational.com and check out the website uh, for the Alex Montoya Foundation at alexmontoya.org, A-L-E-X-M-O-N-T-O-Y-A dot hey, Cor, can I just add one, one and... quick thing? I really want to uh, Please thank do. both you and Matt for for illuminating the important work he does. Uh, you know, one of one of the I would say lesser known aspects of my story is when I immigrated to the U.S. Uh, by the time that I was a high school senior, uh, the the visa that I utilized to be able to come to this country and receive all the services from the Shriners and such actually expired. Uh, it lapsed, so for about a year, I was an undocumented immigrant. And uh, it's a very scary place to be, uh, no matter who's in office, no matter you know what the political climate may be. Uh, it, it's always a pretty scary place to be, and uh, it was it was really interesting uh, and quite frightening uh, to kind of hide in the shadows as far as my uh, documentation went for uh, not only a year but really the most important year of your academic life, your senior year of high school, and it wasn't until I appeared before an immigration judge uh, after high school uh, graduation uh, in which he had uh, two choices. He could either uh, deport me back to Columbia because my uh, visa had lapsed or he could allow me to go to the University of Notre Dame. And fortunately, he chose the latter. He uh, granted me uh, legal residency, which eventually became citizenship. Um, and so I, I will never forget, even though I've been a citizen of this great country now for about 15 years, um, I will never forget how scary uh, those days felt. And I'm just really thankful that uh, the people like Matt are here to uh, help people in that situation and thankful to you for uh, illuminating his work. Yeah. Awesome. That is an, that is an awesome and incredible story. Uh, a, a personal note here from uh, the Alex Montoya show. Uh, so uh, pass, pass this podcast around and, and give it a listen because uh, surely you've got um, some connection to some of the things that we're, that we're talking about. Cause we, um, we, Matt, Alex and I are all part of the Notre Dame family, but obviously um, what we're talking about is a little bit stronger than, than, uh, than just, than, than just blood relations when we're talking about family. So um, join our family on the Alex Montoya podcast and uh, join the family on the Alex Montoya Foundation. Uh, and feel free to hit that donate button that's on the website too. Um, and, and you, can, you can keep us going and, and, and bless our work the same way that, uh, that Matt continues to work with workers and uh, make sure that uh, other people uh, can get their fair wage experiencing the dignity of work. Uh, this is Court Peters, your host for the Alex Montoya Show. Thank you. Thanks for Thank joining you. us.